Have you ever struggled with the question of predestination? What it is? Whether or not you're predestined? Well, that is what we're looking at today in this study of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. This is the Redeeming God podcast, and I am Jeremy Myers. So lots of people have struggled, struggled with predestination. I am one of them, and I'm going to share a little bit with you today about my history of studying predestination, and then also we will be studying Ephesians 1.5, actually just the first uh, one-third of the verse. Usually I try to cover one whole verse in a podcast, but this time it's just one-third of a verse, just the very uh, first couple of words. Don't worry, though. Next time we're going to finish Ephesians 1.5 and also cover Ephesians 1.6 so I can keep up my average of one verse an episode because this used to be the one verse podcast now don't worry eventually i will be covering more verses at a time but um you know i have to uh share uh, what i can from each text and unpack it to the best of my ability uh, as far as you are concerned we're going to be looking at a current event too the issue of racism in bible colleges then i'll be answering a question from a reader about the parable of the ten talents and then we will turn to our study of Ephesians 1.5. There's a lot to cover today. So let's turn to this current event issue about racism in our Bible colleges. So um, you probably didn't hear about this in the news necessarily, but there's a theology professor at Mercer University, and uh, it's Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, and she recently published a book titled A Rhythm of Prayer. All right, and uh, one chapter includes a prayer in which she wrote this. Dear God, please help me hate white people. I want to stop caring about them, individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls, to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. Uh, quite a shock there. That's how she starts the chapter. Now, later in the chapter, she writes, grant, grant me a get-out-of-judgment-free card if I make white people the exception to your commandment to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. All right, and she goes on from there. Pretty shocking to hear those sorts of things coming from a theology professor at a Bible college, but she's not alone, depending on what type of church or what type of pastor or theologian or biblical uh, you know, Christian author you might listen to, these sorts of sentiments um, are becoming more and more common among some Christian circles today. And uh, not just from Christians, of course, but from uh, many people on the left and liberals and Democrats, they feel that white people and Trump voters are all racists who need to be wiped off the face of the earth. In fact, I saw... I think it was an article or something like that from a Stanford University student this past week who was calling for the extermination of all white people. Okay, now, <clears throat> thankfully, Dr. Barnes, or Will, uh, Walker Barnes here, did recognize in the chapter that she was uh, praying for something that was sinful, right? Because there she asks for um, the, the get-out-of-judgment-free card, right? If she ignores Jesus' command— in uh, Luke 6:27 and Matthew to uh, to love our neighbors, you know, to love our enemies. And uh, so she she does recognize that what she's doing is wrong, what she's praying for is wrong. And of course, my answer and God's answer, of course she's forgiven. Uh, God doesn't hate her. I don't hate her. Um, 
or anybody who holds these sentiments. It says those sorts of racist sentiments are sinful, but they are, God forgives. And so we're called to forgive as well. There's no question about that. So I'm, I'm glad that she at least recognizes that and asks God, well, she doesn't actually ask for forgiveness, just a get-out-of-judgment-free card, whatever that means. But um, the thing that troubles me the most, though, about this sort of racist hate speech that is becoming more and more common uh, from liberal leaders, not just secular liberal re- uh, leaders, but also Christian liberal pastors and Bible college professors, um, is, number one, that it's becoming more common. But worse than that, even those who maybe wouldn't say things quite this way or quite with such strong words like this theology professor has, you don't hear the liberal Christian pastors or Bible professors condemning them. I mean, this theology professor still has her job. If it was a white theology professor who had said these sorts of things about a black person or black people, they rightly so would have been terminated from their employment immediately. Okay, but she's allowed to keep her job because she's calling for uh, for her to—she wants to hate white people. Um, furthermore, I haven't heard a single pastor, liberal pastor, Democrat pastor, Christian leader, condemn this sort of language or hate speech. Oftentimes, they praise it, they cheer it on, and sometimes they're silent about it, which is just as wrong. If you're part of the liberal group and you're not condemning hate speech— uh, again, in your own group, then you are basically saying you agree with it. Uh, sometimes when the people do talk about it, they say, well, it's understandable, you have to understand, you know, and they make excuses for it. All of this is wrong. And again, it's it's not isolated incidents. I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine, who, who by the way, is a pastor and a Democrat, um, also, by the way, is a strong believer in nonviolence. I believe in nonviolence, uh, as I've written about elsewhere. But this pastor, he shocked me in our conversation. Okay, this is a nonviolent. He doesn't want, uh, he wants to get rid of guns, and he, he, he wants all wars to end. I want wars to end too. He wants world peace and people to get along. Okay, but <laughs> in the conversation, he expressed his desire to go and punch Nazis in the face and beat them senseless. Um, which is not a not a non-violent sentiment. That, that's fairly violent. Okay, but worse than that, in their conversation, I said, okay, well, who are the Nazis? I, I mean, have you ever met a Nazi? Who, who do you think the Nazis are? And he answered and said, anyone who voted for Trump is a Nazi. Well, okay, so that's half of the population of the United States that he thinks are Nazis, and he wants to punch them all in the face and beat them all senseless? Uh Look, there's a problem with that. And, and this is what, again, this is what many liberals believe, and, and, and many liberal Christians as well. And this sort of thinking is, it's not only destructive to our country and causing all sorts of turmoil and strife and division and hate in our country, but it is also destructive to the cause of the gospel. Uh, look, racism is evil. Everybody agrees on that. I condemn and denounce all forms of racism, wherever it is found and from whomever it comes. God is against racism. And so those Christians who condemn racism in white people, but condone it or allow it or excuse it or overlook it when it comes from some other race, like this theology professor, uh, I would argue that they do not understand the gospel or why Jesus came to earth. 
one of the reasons Jesus came was to destroy these sorts of divisions, to break down these barriers and walls between people. We're going to see all this more when we get into Ephesians chapter 2. It's what Ephesians chapter 2 is all about, by the way, and we'll be studying more of that. Jesus came to show us how to love, forgive, and accept all people, including our enemies, including those we'd rather hate. And if we do not follow Jesus in this regard, in these ways, then I would argue we're not following Jesus at all. All right? A lot more I could say about this. By the way, I'm currently reading a fantastic book on this very topic. It's by uh, Vadi Baucom Jr. It's titled Fault Lines. It's available on Amazon, wherever books are sold. It's like number 16 on the Amazon bestseller list right now. I think it hit some top 10 lists last week. I love the book so much. I'm going to talk about it in our current events section of the podcast next week. So make sure you join us there. But, But for now, look, just make a commitment to condemn racism wherever it's found, because that's what God does, and that's what Jesus has called us to do. And uh, that's what I try to do as well. All right, let's get into the Q&A section of this podcast. You have mail. So there was a super alert reader who recently sent me this question. I was actually very surprised by the level of understanding and uh, just how much they this, this she had studied my site and some of the things, because she found a contradiction in my site and asked me about it. Here's what she wrote. Thank you so much for sharing your heart and truths you have studied. It has helped me on my journey. So the other day, I was reading your post about the parable of the Ten Talents and how you said that the master in the parable was not Jesus. Yet today, I was reading your sermon on the triumphal entry of Jesus in Luke, and in the article, you state that Jesus is the master going off to the far country. So which is it? Thanks for clearing this up for me in advance. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Again, a fantastic question because she found two different places on my website where I contradict myself. I say two different things. All right, well, the answer to her question, by the way, if you want to go read those two articles she's referring to, I have linked to them in the manuscript show notes section for this podcast at redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 1-5-A. Anyway, uh, the answer to the question is that the Sermon on the Triumphal Entry, uh, I wrote nearly and taught nearly 20 years ago. In fact, as I think about it, yeah, it was about 20 years ago on that. And uh, the explanation on the parable of the Ten Talents was within the last year, okay? So the contradiction, really all it shows is a progression in my thinking. And I think anybody who's a serious student of Scripture has had this happen. The things that you believed and taught and maybe wrote 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even two years ago, you maybe don't agree with now because you have come to see things in a different light. And uh, she wrote me back, by the way, and said she thought it was something like that because the same thing has happened to her as well as it's happened to everybody. So um, I argue now that in the triumphal entry, you notice it, uh, Jesus doesn't go to a far country. Where does he go? He goes up to Jerusalem, which is in, it's in his own very country. It's a very own country. It's the capital city of, of Israel that Jesus goes to. So he's not going off to a far country. So therefore he is not the master of the parable of the 10 talents. And, uh, but Jesus is making a comparison. I still hold that to be true with what he is going up to Jerusalem to do, what will happen to him there, and 
the parable of the ten talents. And the comparison, though, isn't that Jesus is the master, and so look what happens, um, what he's going to do to his followers there. Instead, Jesus actually is equating himself with that third servant in the parable, the one who is rejected and condemned and cast out by the master. All right, if you if you read my article on how to understand the parable of the ten talents, or the parable of the minas, it's a slightly different version, then uh, you will know what that means and, and how all that fits together. So anyway, um, Jesus is the third servant here, and he basically is saying, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to show you. I don't play by the rules of this world. I don't play their games, and therefore they are going to condemn me and cast me out and reject me. And by the way, when you follow me, that is what is going to happen to you as well. All right. And by the way, and I have updated, if you go look at my sermon on the triumphal entry now, you will see that um, I've changed the view a little bit. It's it uh, I've updated it, so it no longer contains that contradiction. Okay. Anyway, thanks for the alert reader. She asked to remain anonymous, so I won't say her name, but uh, very impressive for pointing that out. Again, if you have questions or comments you'd like to send in and maybe have me answer on the podcast, just go to my website, redeeminggod.com, scroll to the very bottom, And there's a contact me link down there, which you can fill out that form and send it in. Okay, so let's get on with our study of Ephesians 1.5. So the very first time I preached Ephesians 1.5 was over 20 years ago. And I was a young pastor in my first church. I remember very distinctly because as I began to explain what I'm going to share with you in this podcast, uh, one of the elders in my church stood up, uh, loudly said to his family, come on, we're leaving, (laughs) gathered them all up. They filed out of the row, out the back of the church, and never returned to the church again. Now, I called him uh, later that week, I think maybe it was even later that day, to find out why he left. And he basically said, Pastor, because you're teaching heresy. (laughs) Uh, Okay, and the reason he thought I was a heretic is because he was a Calvinist, and he disagreed with what I was teaching about predestination from Ephesians 1.5. Now, if you don't know what Calvinism is, that's okay. Uh, If you do know, then you know that certain uh, Calvinism has certain views of election and predestination that are sort of central to the way they read the Bible. And by the way, I should let you know, I I used to be a five-point Calvinist, and... um, I, it's only when I really started studying what Calvinism teaches and whether or not it lines up with what Scripture teaches that I began to reject various points of Calvinism. And so this sermon on Ephesians 1.5 was sort of the beginning of that. Um, I'd already rejected, I think, one of the points, limited atonement by that point, but this was sort of a starting point where I was starting to reject some of the other points of Calvinism. So anyway, the sermon I preached was the beginning or near the beginning of that process. The elder didn't like it, he left the church, and he never came back. So you get to hear now what I taught briefly. It's a different format now. But again, I encourage you, whatever you believe about Calvinism, predestination, election, that sort of a thing, look, study the scriptures for yourself. That's what I did. And follow the truths where they lead. Um, Be a noble Berean. So here's the part of Ephesians 1.5 we're looking at in today's podcast episode. Ephesians 1.5a, in love, he predestined us. (laughs) That's it. It's all as, that's as far as we're going. Okay, again, don't worry. Next time we'll be looking at the rest of Ephesians 1.5 and also 1.6. So um, we're not going to be bogged down here 
with half of a verse. Now, remember last time Ephesians 1.4 we looked at, it was a key verse on election. Ephesians 1.5 is a key verse on predestination. Now, election and predestination are similar ideas, but there's one key difference. If you remember what I taught about election, election is not God's choice from eternity past about who's going to receive eternal life. Election is to service. Uh, it's God's choice that whoever believes in him, that is, whoever becomes a Christian, whoever becomes in Jesus Christ, in Christ, God is going to give them specific roles and functions and purposes and tasks in his plan for the world. And I even mentioned in that podcast that even some unbelievers are chosen. Uh, Judas, for example, if he was an unbeliever, King Cyrus, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, others, okay, to perform certain tasks. So uh, election is to service. It is not to eternal life. Justification is, it, uh, not justification, uh, predestination is similar. Okay, election is, it has to do with God's people. Uh, okay, uh, predestination has to do with God's purposes. Election is sort of the who. Who is God going to choose to serve him? Uh, predestination is the what. What are they going to do? Uh, and ultimately, in, in predestination, as we'll see, what is God going to do? Maybe that is even the key difference here. Okay? So, we see right at the start of Ephesians 1.5 that we do not need to be concerned about predestination because it's in love. Anything God does for us is in love, with love, from the source of love, and therefore it should not be concerning. And lots of people be very concerned and worried about predestination. Am I predestined? Do I have eternal life? What if I'm not predestined? How I'm going to head for hell forever. Look, uh, if, if you're getting afraid and concerned about predestination, then you have not understood it properly. Predestination comes from God's love. Okay, so what is predestination then? Well, you can really cut the word in two. Pre means before, obviously. And then, you know, previously, something like that. To destined means to decide. It sort of relates to, I guess we get destiny from it. It sort of refers to the future, to decide what the future holds, sort of an idea. So the word predestined, though, means to previously decide or decide beforehand about the future, something like that. The Greek word, by the way, literally means to mark out beforehand. Okay, sort of put some boundaries or make a plan beforehand. And honestly, it's something that we all do every day, definitely at various times throughout our lives. Uh, if you make lists like my wife does, if you make plans, then you have predestined something. Here's what I'm gonna, If you have a calendar uh, and, and you put schedules on it, things, doctor's appointments and, appoint, and parties and birthdays, look, you, you predestined certain elements of your life. Uh, we all do that. So if you've ever thought, boy, I wonder what I would do if I won a million dollars. Well, look, you've just predestined that million dollars. I'd buy this, I'd go there, I'd put this much in savings, I'd donate that much. Okay, you predestined the million dollars. If you ever thought what you might do when you retire, you have predestined, pre-planned, marked out beforehand your retirement. Uh, young parents, they're going to have a child. If they find out what sex it is, then they predestine the child's name. We're going to name it this. Maybe they even predestine what room of the house the child will sleep in, the color of the paint or the wallpaper, the, the clothes, the bedding, okay? Uh, the toys, all sorts of things. Those are all predestined events. They are predestinating things about their very own child. 
Now, you might say, yeah, but Jeremy, when we predestine things, there's no guarantee that those things will occur. That's right. That's because we are human. We are limited in our power, in our wisdom, in our abilities. Uh, whereas God is not. He is, has infinite wisdom and infinite power. Uh, he's all wise. And so when God predestines something, it's very different than when we humans pre-plan something. Uh, when God pre-plans something, he knows it's going to take place. He guarantees that it will happen. And so that is what predestination is. Uh, and we do it, but God's predestination is perfect. Okay? It, it occurs. So what then has God predestined? What does God predestinate, if we could put it that way? And I'll be as blunt and straightforward on this as I know how. God doesn't, first of all, let's just do it negatively. God does not predestine some people to go to heaven or some people to go to hell. Uh, remember that Calvinism I mentioned earlier? There's a specific version of Calvinism called hyper-Calvinism. It's also referred to as double predestination. So Calvinism believes that in eternity past, God predestined the eternal destiny of people. Um, Single predestination is God only chooses which people will go to heaven. And he sort of doesn't do anything with the rest. Double predestination is no, God predestines the destiny of everybody. He chooses who will go to heaven, and he also chooses which people will go to hell. That's double predestination. It's related to hyper-Calvinism. Again, I don't believe that predestination has anything whatsoever to do with God deciding in eternity past who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell, okay? Uh, and that's why that elder in my church didn't like what I was teaching, and he left, because I was challenging his entire theological belief system. Predestination instead, again, I, I referred to it earlier, it's the what of God's plan for believers. It refers to God's choice, God's plan, God's determination beforehand to what? Well, election is to service. Predestination is to God's choice to bring all of his children into eternity with him. Okay? Uh, predestination teaches us about glorification. Uh, not, it's about who gets glorified, not who gets justified. And that's the, that's the primary misconception most people have about predestination. They think it's God's choice of who he's going to justify, but it isn't. Passages you look at about predestination... It's God making a choice that everyone who has eternal life will be glorified. That is, will receive their perfect, glorified bodies in eternity with him. They can spend eternity with him. Right? So, um, it, it's God's predetermination, deciding, marking out beforehand that he would bring into glory everyone who believed in Jesus for eternal life. Everyone who was justified. Okay, there's absolutely nothing in predestination about God's choice of which people get justified and which people will not. Predestination has nothing whatsoever to do with that. It's a categorical mistake to think it does. Okay, predestination is about the destiny of believers. What's that destiny? You're going to be glorified. Okay, it is not has nothing whatsoever to do about the destiny of unbelievers. Predestination does not speak to unbelievers at all. Who's going to get justified or nothing like that. 
Okay? It's God's choice, God's predetermined plan that everyone who believes in Jesus for eternal life will spend eternity in heaven. In fact, we could say that, therefore, predestination is an aspect of eternal security. It's related to eternal security. It is God's promise that if you are justified by him, that you will be glorified. All right, now I've taught about this elsewhere. One passage, one of the other famous passages in the New Testament of predestination is Romans 8, 28 to 30. I will link to that in the notes for this podcast episode as well. Let me just briefly discuss this because it's another passage where people talk about predestination a lot sometimes referred to as the golden chain of salvation or redemption, something like that. Um, Paul writes there that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, okay, and he refers to being called, justified, glorified, according to God's purpose, and so on, all right? And uh, I've written about this elsewhere, but again, if you notice what is here in Romans 8, 28, and 30, and what is not, everything Paul lists there are things that God alone does. Uh, everything Paul leaves out are the things that humans have some involvement with. So, for example, if we're referring to receiving eternal life, well, faith is fairly important in that, isn't it? <laughs> to receive eternal life, we need to believe in Jesus for it. Uh, but Paul doesn't mention faith in Romans 8, 28 and 30. Uh, sanctification as well. Sanctification is quite important in the life of the believer. We're supposed to be sanctified as we follow Jesus on the path of discipleship. But again, sanctification isn't mentioned. Discipleship isn't mentioned. None of those things are mentioned in this passage, which means this is sort of like Paul talking about Abraham uh, with making a covenant with God in Genesis. Remember that? And God causes Abraham to fall asleep so that God walks through the severed animals all by himself. Well, that's the same thing here. God, in that, in that instance with Abraham, was saying, my covenant with you is unconditional. There's nothing you have to do. I am going to fulfill the conditions of this covenant all by myself. That's what Romans 8, 28, and 30 is about as well. Nothing here involves, has human involvement. It's all God's part. And God is saying, I am going to fulfill these things completely independent of you humans all by myself. And of course, justification is involved, is mentioned there. We do not justify ourselves in any way, shape, or form. We can't be good enough. We, you know, we can't stop sinning enough. But also glorification is mentioned there. This is God's commitment that everyone who is justified will be glorified. And of course, in this chain Paul also mentions predestination, which again just shows that this is God's predetermined plan from eternity past that everybody who is justified will be glorified. All right, so again, what is predestination all about? It's not God's plan from eternity past about who he will justify or who gets eternal life. No, it's God's plan from eternity past that whoever becomes justified, whoever receives eternal life by believing in Jesus for it, God commits himself to justifying them, to declaring them righteous, and God commits himself that no matter what they think, no matter what they say, no matter what they do or don't do, that he will bring them into glorification. All right? So, so, so predestination and foreknowledge and calling and justification, these are all aspects of eternal security, of God determining that he would give eternal life to those who believe in Jesus for it, 
and never take that eternal life away from them. So, and this is very important for Paul to mention to the Roman readers at the time, because many of them, like many people today, were struggling with feelings of inadequacy or guilt, failure, fear, doubt. You ever struggled with those things? Thought that maybe God doesn't love you anymore, that maybe God can't forgive you because of something you've said or done? You doubt some of the things that you've learned or been taught from Scripture? Well, the Roman Christians, the Christians in Rome that Paul is writing to, they had many of the same cares and fears. And so this was a very encouraging promise to them. And he was telling these Christians, and therefore he's telling us, look, whatever doubts or fears or failures you have, senses of inadequacy, don't worry. God has a plan. He's taken care of everything, and ultimately you will be glorified. And so this is the beautiful truth of predestination. There in Romans 8, and then back here now in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Predestination is a promise of safety and security in the arms of God, that nothing can take you out of God's hands. It's a promise of final and ultimate glorification, that you will be with God and the saints in eternity forever. Predestination is the promise of God that to, to us, to his children, that he will bring us through to the end. He promises to glorify us, to make us holy, to make us perfect, to make us his heirs. By the way, that's the concept of adoption that we will begin to look at, that we will look at next week in Ephesians 1, uh, 5, and 6. And of course, whatever God promises, he's able to keep. We are eternally secure in the hands of God because of predestination. Okay, so what is predestination? Just to summarize, it's not God's choice in eternity past about who would receive eternal life and who would not. Instead, it's God's plan from eternity past, he marked it out beforehand, to make sure that everyone who believed in Jesus for eternal life, he would keep them forever in eternal life, and he would finally and ultimately glorify them in eternity with him. It's God's promise to you and to me that no matter what you've gone through, or no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, God will always love you, always accept you, always forgive you. And it is up to God alone to bring you into eternity, into glorification, to be with him forever. Now that's an encouraging truth, right? And we're going to see more of that next time when we look at the rest of Ephesians 5 as well as Ephesians 6, focusing really in on that word adoption. Adoption in the Bible is not what you think it is. So we'll be studying that more next time when we pick up the rest of Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 1.6. Until then, just rejoice that God has decided to bring you into eternity with him no matter what. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time when we pick back up with the rest of Ephesians 5 and into verse 6.